Thanks, Sienna and Brooke. So tough questions we're looking at at the moment, uh, difficult questions that are thrown at us. If you're a Christian person, uh, difficult questions that I think we'd like to know the answer to or have a good, good idea of anyway. Here's the one for today. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's a tough question, isn't it? That is a tough question. How about we pray and ask God to help us understand the question and uh, see what God has to say about it. And it's good news, I think, the answer God gives us. Let's, um, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, church this morning. Thank you that you've called us here and gathered us here together. Uh, it's, it's a good gift and we thank you for that. We thank you that we can freely open your word today and wrestle with difficult things. And, um, and again, we thank you, Lord, that you give us uh, your word. You give us a, a, a light in a dark place that, um, that uh, uh, directs us and, and uh, explains things to us. So, Lord, we pray today that um, you'd help us to listen, help me to be clear, and uh, we thank you again for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So, October 26, last year, Ivan Malat, he's the notorious backpacker killer, he died of cancer. Uh, he was 74. He was the guy convicted of savagely killing seven backpackers in the Belanglo State Forest in the 1990s. And with his death, leaves several other disappearances unsolved. He took those secrets to his grave. Now, I admit that doesn't sit well with me. How about you? I don't know. It doesn't sit well with me. You see, I don't think that's justice. I don't know. We yearn for justice. We do. Justice for victims, justice for families. But you know what's interesting? What's interesting, this is in modern day Australia, 2020, uh, we may yearn for justice and struggle with this type of thing going on. We may yearn for justice, but we hate judgment. We hate judgment. So no one likes to be judged. If you followed the Israel Folau saga that went on a while back, uh, and putting aside whether he was right or wrong and any of that sort of stuff, we can debate that over coffee if you like, um, but people's reaction were clear. This is his first original Instagram little post. People's reactions were clear, even if they didn't actually believe in hell, well, they didn't like being told that's where they were heading. No one likes to be judged. It's a great social faux pas, isn't it, today, to be judgmental. We must be inclusive. How dare you say what I can and I can't have? Now, I think that's what, what's, what makes this second question of our summer series so tough. How can a loving God send people to hell? It's tough because the Bible's answer, Jesus' answer, well, is not inclusive. Jesus speaks the most about heaven and hell in the Bible. It's not inclusive, nor is it fashionable. And at its centre is a God who judges. The Bible says clearly, some are in and some are out. That's a tough question. And we've got to ask then, how can a loving God do that? I heard on local radio this week, that, uh, and this is ABC, where most middle-aged men listen, um, and... <laughs> I do listen to Triple J sometimes, only when my children put it on. Anyway, this is what this conversation went like. It said, we humans are essentially good, right? They said, 
well, except for people like Ivan Milat, but we're essentially good. You know, that's the first big claim of the Bible. As we investigate this question, the, the Bible says, well, that's actually not true, really. The human heart is corrupt. Now, evil might be too strong a word, but it's not really inaccurate. Our evil just works itself out in different ways. Now, let me give you a little exercise. Uh, see how you go with this. It's been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. So run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? Maybe some of you are starting to squirm a little bit now. That's interesting, isn't it? Full transcript of my thoughts over the next few days. I wonder how your marriage would fare. I wonder how your relationship with your children or with your parents would fare. Would you still have a job? <laughs> no. What about your friends? Would they stick around? Eh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I came across this little cartoon during the week. I do like learned cartoons. Some of them are quite cryptic. This one's pretty clear. Are humans basically wicked, stupid, hostile and conceited? I'm not, but I sincerely believe that you are. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? Because not all our thoughts are bad. Many are good and kind and true. But like a, a, a bag of flour infested with maggots, no part of me is pure. No part of me is pure. Well, as Paul wrote in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. We've all sinned against God, is the next line. If being loved by God is a reward for good behaviour, or even reaching God's standard, no one would make the cut. I read this quote by this Russian novelist and poet. Uh, that makes me sound really impressive, but I just read the quote. Um, anyway, this is what he looked like, a fashionable sort of guy. Um, <laughs> This is what he said, though, really interesting little quote. He, he actually wrote it, too, uh, in the 1920s, while he was lying, I guess, on a bed of straw in, a, in one of Lenin's labour camps in the, in, uh, in, in the, I guess it was Soviet Union back then, one of those gulags, I think they're called. This is what he said. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. I think he's right. I think he's right. He talks about our heart. So what do we do with this as human people, as people, humans? With this realisation, well, what we do is we try to hide. That's we try to hide our true self. Now, I guess don't get caught up in the self-love language of you do you. The truth is few of us want to publicise the transcript of our thoughts because we know too often, well, they're going to fall short. We don't want our thoughts publicised, thank you very much, because we know they're not much good sometimes. Our hearts are not pure. And so what we do is we try to hide. I guess you could say then we're left with a choice between either to be known or to be loved. If you think about that for a moment, 
That's the choice, I guess, we find ourselves in, to be known or to be loved. Now, how does God speak into all this then? That's our next question. Well, Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word cuts through. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts through our hearts. It, cut, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. You see, the gospel message, the gospel message is like a searchlight. Think of a big searchlight in a helicopter searching out. So on the one hand, it confronts us with a God who sees our thoughts, knows our hearts, our words, our deeds. That's what the gospel message does we'd read in the Bible. The parts we work so hard to keep hidden, well, they're laid open. They're in the spotlight before God. He sees them all. The one person who has the right to judge has all the evidence. God sees it all. We can't hide from him. But on the other hand, this, this same searchlight that could expose us as fugitive criminals running away, this same searchlight is shining on us as lost children. The, Bible, the God of the Bible is, is looking for us, is longing for us, is calling us to come home. About 12 years ago, it must have been now I came out, uh, little Archie, and I've asked Archie's permission to tell this story. He's not so little now. Little Archie, about 12 years ago, went off exploring without telling mum. Now, at first, Michelle looked on her own. She headed straight to the toy section. You know, Archie, a two-year-old, that's where to go. But no luck, no clues. Then she recruited some other parents to help. And if you're a parent and you've had this situation or if you've looked after kids before and you've lost one, you know that panic that starts to rise? Yeah, that, no, that feeling. Um, that started to happen. Michelle's imagination started to do what it does very well. So she contacted security. That was the next thing. They responded brilliantly. I imagine that they've had a fair bit of practice doing this sort of thing. And then, just as Michelle was giving further tear-filled descriptions of Archie, a security guard showed up with the long-haired, blonde lad, happy as Larry, holding a new toy acquired from the toy section. He'd found a, found a very quiet spot, camouflaged under some shelving, playing happily with his new action man. I don't know what the, but the toy was. I think it was something like that anyway. What did Michelle do? Well, Michelle grabbed him hugged him, kissed him over and over again. And Michelle and, and Archie are going to demonstrate this in a few moments' time. Um, <laughs> just kidding, Archie, we're not going to do that. <laughs> hugged him and kissed him. And, and, and Michelle said, never, never, never leave, leave me again like that. Don't ever do it. You see, his mother searched for him because she loves him. And that is how God searches for us. God searches for us, calls us to himself because he loves us. That's what the God of the Bible says. See, in the famous parable of the lost son, you know, might remember that parable of the prodigal son, it used to be called, old-fashioned old sort of language, but God is the father and, and he sees his wayward son from a, a long way off and he runs to him and he hugs him and he kisses him and he calls for a party to celebrate. Not because his son is innocent. No, far from it. 
but because he's loved. The sun was lost and is now found. As he shines his searchlight, God doesn't pursue us like wanted criminals, but like wanted children. That's the first thing, first part of this answer to this tough question I want you to see. So I say it again. God doesn't pursue us like wanted criminals, even though our hearts are not pure, even though we rebel against God and his good ways. No, no, no. He pursues us like wanted, lost children. Okay, so if God is, uh, God is big on justice, it's true, and all our attitudes and thoughts and motives are out in the open before him and he sees it all, searchlight on us, why isn't the searchlight shining on us like wanted criminals? Fair question, isn't it? Isn't that what we deserve? If that's all true, what we've been saying, isn't that what we deserve? Well, I want to take you back to the night before Jesus' death. So Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's profoundly distressed. He prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. A couple of verses later, an angel was sent to strengthen Jesus. And Luke recorded this. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, why was he in anguish? Why was he afraid? Was he afraid to die or was it the manner of his death? I want to say, yeah, fair enough. Plenty of people at that time had seen the agony of crucifixion. But there was something far greater going on, something far more significant going on at this time. Jesus was experiencing a deeper pain than just the anticipation of crucifixion. And the clue is what Jesus prayed to, re- to be removed. Did you see what he prayed to be removed? Take this cup from me. Throughout the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for God's judgment, uh, or to use a more old-fashioned language again, God's wrath. Jesus faced drinking down the righteous anger and judgment of God against sin on an epic scale. Because of the cross, the justice of God was demonstrated. Now let me explain that. On the cross, God's anger, God's righteous anger at all, our, all humanity's sin, our, our rebellion against God's good ways, all our corruption, all our evil, all our selfishness, all our failures was poured out on Jesus, on his son. The price was paid for our sin. That price was death. And justice was served. How is that justice? That sounds like a great injustice, doesn't it? An outpouring of anger against an innocent man. How is the cross of Christ justice? Two things. One, the Bible makes clear Jesus is not the passive victim of God's wrath. Jesus was in on it. Because Jesus is God himself. And that's why his sacrifice makes, that's why that sacrifice makes the difference with us and God. It means on the cross, Jesus is both executioner and condemned. On the cross, the one perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly innocent man who ever lived faced the full force of God's judgment and he drank it down and he threw away the cup. In biblical shorthand, he went to hell. 
And second, the Bible tells us that just as Jesus is not separate from God whose wrath he faces on the cross, so he's not separate from you and I when we put our trust in him. God's justice is in fact love. This love of God in action on the cross means we don't face the wrath of God. Jesus has done that for us. Every evil of our hearts has been laid out before him and all, in all, in, and all his goodness and love has been credited to our account. It's an exchange. That's what happened on the cross. Our bad on him, he's good on us. God sees us just like his son. And so that means, this is the way the Bible puts it, this is why Jesus puts it. That means that we're, we're left with a choice. Face God without Jesus and so face the wrath of God for eternity and Jesus calls that hell. We'll get talking about that in a minute. Or trust in Jesus and I guess we could say hide in him because he takes it all for us. He's done it all for us. John 3 verse 17 to 18 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, and whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus puts it very simply, the Bible puts it very simply, it's a choice. It's one or the other. We tend to think of heaven and hell primarily as places to be sent. Uh, think of how many heaven or hell skits and cartoons you might have seen with, this might be me, I don't know, with people with packed suitcases. I don't know if you've seen that. I don't know. Skits, like we're off for something new and interesting, some sort of new destination. That's the way a lot of us think about it. Some people imagine our destination depends on our deeds. If, we're, if we are, on balance, uh, good people, or if you're in the Muslim faith, if our good outweighs our bad, then we can expect heaven. While bad people, like the Ivan Malats of our world, um, they languish in hell. But others think Christianity sorts people into heaven and hell on the basis of their ability to recite certain uh, statements. So those lucky enough to be told about Jesus and trusting enough to believe that he died in their place, well, they're sent to heaven. And those who have not heard or those who have other religious preferences or maybe simply sort of too smart to believe in this crazy sort of stuff about a resurrected man, uh, well, they, they, um, they're dispatched to a place called hell. The Bible, however, tells a different story. Heaven, the Bible describes, is not primarily a good place that you're sent to. Uh, if, you're, um, if you know the TV show, the US TV show called The Good Place, uh, it gets it wrong, really. It's not primarily about a place you're sent to. Heaven is shorthand for the full blessing of relationship with God. It's the lost prodigal son coming home. It's the bride being embraced by her husband with tears of joy. It's the new heavens and new earth where God's people with uh, upgraded resurrection bodies will enjoy eternity with him at a level of intimacy which, into which even the best human marriage gives uh, no more than a glimpse. Heaven is home, an embodied experience of deep relationship with God and his people on a recreated earth. Hell is the opposite. It's the door shut in the face of the lost son who squanders his inheritance. It's the divorce certificate delivered at the moment of remorse. It's the criminal receiving his just deserts. Here's how one writer put it. 
So if Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we read that a few moments ago, loss of Jesus is eternal death. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. Uh, there's an, um, I don't know many operas, let's be honest here, but there is one opera I do know, and it's got a great story. It's called um, uh, Eugene Wanjin. Uh, it's actually a novel as well. I think it was a novel first, then an opera. And it tells the story of this jaded aristocrat Wanjin who meets an innocent young girl in the countryside. Uh, this girl's name is Tatiana, and that's actually true. I'm not making that up this time for those who've been around for a while at church here. I tend to use a female name, and I go for a Russian one each time. But this girl's name in the book, in the, in the novel, is Tatiana. Anyway, Tatiana writes him a letter, offering him her love. And Wanjin doesn't even reply. Well, they meet again, and again he turns her down. He says the letter was touching, but he would soon grow bored of marriage to her. It's a bit harsh, but anyway. Years later, Wanjin enters a St Petersburg party and sees this stunningly beautiful woman. Yep, you guessed it, it's Tatiana. But now she's married. Wanjin falls in love with her. He tries desperately to win her back, but Tatiana refuses him. See, once the door was open, she offered him her love, but now it's shut. For many people, it's easy to reject Jesus now. Like Tatiana's letter to Wanjin, her offer is touching, but we believe we'll be happier without such a commitment. We worry Jesus will cramp our style. So we move on with life and leave him sort of to the spiritual countryside. But one day, the Bible warns us, we'll see Jesus in all his glory and power. We will know in that moment that all our treasures were nothing compared with him. And we'll bitterly reject that decision. But it'll be no more unfair than Tatiana's rejection of Wanjin. If we accept Jesus now, we'll live with him forever in, the fullness, in a fullness of life we cannot imagine. If we reject him, well, he will one day reject us and we'll be eternally devastated and the choice is ours. Many of us probably wouldn't have heard of this guy, Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser was the US gymnastics team doctor. He was convicted in July 2017 of hundreds of sexual assault crimes on young girls in the US team dating back to 1992. In his trial, uh, one of his victims, uh, a lady called Rachel Denhalanda, uh, she's a Christian woman and the first woman to file sex abuse charges against NASA. She faced the man who took her innocence and pleaded with him to turn to Jesus Christ. The video, which you can watch, it goes her, her comments, speech, whatever you want to call it, in the trial, goes for about 45 minutes. It's, it's fascinating watching. Uh, look it up. It, it, the video went viral, not only in Christian circles, but across the world. I want to read to you part of what she said. She said, the Bible, she explained, 
carries a final judgment where all God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. Now just as powerfully later on, she makes the point that she, a victim to child abuse, stands ultimately in the same dock as her, as her abuser. The cross of Christ serves justice. Through Jesus, Nasser's sin could be forgiven, the slate wiped clean. The crushing weight could be lifted. That, that's the ultimate scandal of the Christian faith. The worst criminal can be welcomed. And the, that is good news for us because, well, we're, we're more sinful than we realise. We need Jesus more than we, we realise. But in Christ, we can be more known, more loved, and more truly alive than we've ever dreamed. How about I pray? And uh, I'll give you a moment just to think and maybe pray to God yourself, uh, and then we'll, I'll close. Father, when we think about hell, the Bible tells us clearly that it's real and that it's terrible and that it's avoidable. It's avoidable through trusting in your son Jesus who died for us, who, uh, who in his death brought justice. He paid the price for our sin. Lord, we pray that we uh, can all turn to you that we can trust in you. Maybe today, Lord, is a day where some of us do that for the first time. And Lord, we, um, we ask that we would accept, believe and commit to following you. That we would deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. That in Jesus we can know you, that we can be forgiven us and even, even people like this guy, Larry Nasser. We thank you for your love and mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.